What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but they should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. Amen. The Word of our God indeed stands forever. Does that include verses 34 and 35? We're going to talk about that here in just a little bit, but we've got to make our way there slowly first. Consider a building project. All the different skilled workers are in order, they're all coming together and doing their job in a way that perfectly fits alongside the other skilled workers in their job. But then consider another project. Everyone shows up doing whatever they want, however they want, with whatever tools they want. And if you were in the market for a new house and you had to buy one from the orderly builders or you had to buy one from Chaos and Sons, which one would you buy? I think the answer is obvious to all of us. And that's really the focus of Paul in this portion of the letter. Are you here to sabotage us again? Good to know. All right. Well, in the previous section, the Apostle Paul, he wants our speech to be intelligible. That's what we saw this last week. Intelligible, that is understandable for the purpose of building up. But here in this passage, in this section of the chapter, he wants our speech to be ordered. Last week, he wants our speech to be intelligible. This week, he wants our speech to be ordered, and all of this ultimately with the aim of building up. Now, the, the attitude in Corinth was one of self-promotion. We've seen that all the way through the letter. It was one of self-promotion rather than selfless service. 
Their zeal, in a sense, outpaced their spiritual maturity. That's why the Apostle Paul talked to them time and again like they were children, calling them to grow up. He exhorted them all the way up in verse 20. You need to stop acting like children, he said. Be mature in your thinking. Because in immature churches, zeal outpaces godliness. But churches who are mature in their thinking, well, they do all things for building up. That's what we saw in verse 26 in our reading. And that's the theme of our passage. Every member is a builder. Building up is the goal. The big idea, really, of the passage centers around that. Our aim is to build up the church with gospel words in an orderly way, spoken in an orderly way. Our aim is to build up the church with gospel words spoken in an orderly way. Remember, we just saw the same thing last week. Our aim is to build up the church by speaking gospel words in an intelligible way. Well, this week, our aim is to speak in an orderly way. That's what we're seeing in the passage. And we're going to see in verses 26 to 33, Paul is going to explain that builders are orderly. Good builders are orderly. That's the first point. And then following his logic, beginning in the second half of verse 33 all the way to the end of the chapter, he's going to argue that orderly building submits to God's Word. Orderly building submits to God's Word. So, good builders are orderly. Orderly building submits to God's Word. That's the basic flow of the passage. And out of you follow along with me. Let's consider that first point beginning in verse 26, that builders are orderly. What is it that we see there in 26? Do we see a blueprint for the building? Is this what all churches are to look like or sound like? In other words, as you glance at verse 26, if all these things aren't happening in every one of our meetings, are we getting things wrong? Well, I don't think that's what the Apostle Paul means in that list that we see in verse 26. Remember, Paul is writing to correct a certain error in the Corinthian church. Verse 26 is describing this church. But what it's not doing is prescribing certain elements. In other words, this is how Every church gathering should look for every church in all places at all times. I think that seems obvious from the fact that essential elements are missing, such as prayer and singing and other things that we find elsewhere in the Scriptures. Paul is dealing specifically with the, with the Corinthian gatherings. So what we're not trying to do is figure out from these verses what our order of service needs to look like. Instead, we're asking how are the gifts to be used and to what end? Here the emphasis is on speaking in particular tongues. It's on, it's on prophesying. We defined all of those last week. But Paul's going to say the end of all these things that they do, or whatever gifts are used, in verse 26, the goal is always building up. But as I said, the focus here in this particular church, because of the way that they were using spiritual gifts in particular ways, Paul's emphasis is on tongue-speaking, and on prophecy. Now, I defined those last week, but I want to do it quickly again for those of you who may have forgotten or were absent. A tongue is most likely, when we survey the Bible, the tongue is most likely 
a known human language that is filled with gospel content. Paul calls that gospel content mysteries. We saw that earlier in the chapter. And so it's a known human language spoken and filled with gospel content that can be understood. That's what a tongue is. But on the other hand, prophecy is essentially to speak forth God's Word to God's people, and it's always for the sake of building them up, as we saw earlier in the chapter. It's for building them up, it's for encouraging them, it is for consoling or comforting them with the promises of God. And he wants them in this chapter to desire prophecy above all because their primary pursuit, their aim, their goal is love unintelligible speaking and disorderly speaking is unloving. And so he says, you should desire prophecy above all so that gospel words will build up the church. And in order for gospel words to build up the church, they need to be intelligible. People need to understand what you're saying because that's the goal. Whether we're to consider these gifts or others like teaching or administration, hospitality or leadership or whatever it may be, Paul says the goal is always the same. It is in the pursuit of love and in verse 26, it is to do everything we do for the sake of building up the church. That language of building up is translated edifying elsewhere in the New Testament. It means to strengthen the goal is to make the church stronger by the gospel. Building up is the goal. And good builders are not only those who speak intelligible words, but are there those who do so in an orderly fashion. Notice the beginning and the end of our passage. Verse 26, he says, Let all things be done decently and in order or rather, let all things be done for building up, verse 26. Verse 40, let all things be done decently and in order. Good order, Paul's arguing, is necessary for building up. If you're going to build up the church, you have to not only speak intelligible words, but you need to do it in an orderly fashion. That's the argument of the passage. So Paul's going to tell them here in the opening section of our passage, first in verses 27 to 28, he's going to tell them how to build with tongues in an orderly way. And then in verses 29 to 30, he's going to tell them how to build with prophecy in an orderly way. And we'll look at each one briefly in, in succession. But as you glance through those verses, I want you to notice that in all instances, good order requires not only speaking, but it also requires silence. It's worth seeing that three times Paul says, be silent. Verse 28, regarding tongues, let each of them keep silent. Down in verse 30, regarding speaking prophecy, let the first be silent. And then down in verse 34, on judging prophecy, the women should keep silent. We'll get to that in due time. Now, Paul can't mean never speak because each time he gives this command this command to be silent, he's giving it in the context of certain church members speaking and listening. So, speaking is the context, which means that his command is a qualified command. It's not an absolute command, it's qualified by certain circumstances. In other words, he wants churches to be wise with their words. 
that when it comes to building up the church in an orderly way, there are times and ways when speaking is really useful, and there are times when silence is best. In all things, he says, in speaking or in silence, his argument is to do all things for building up. Do all things decently and in good order. And he says, let's begin with tongues, verse 27. If any speaks in a tongue, let there be only two or most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each one of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. He says right off the bat that if you're going to speak in another language, there needs to be an interpreter. Intelligibility is the goal. See also the first half of chapter 14. And for a tongue to be intelligible, it needs to be heard and it needs to be understood with the mind so that the church can be built up not only in loving the Lord our God with all of our strengths and all of our soul, but all of our mind, and we need to be able to understand it. And that's really hard to do, he says, if multiple people are speaking in different tongues at the same time. It's all going to sound like gibberish at that point, so he says, try to limit it to two or three speakers and then make them take turns. Because if they're all speaking different tongues at the same time, it is going to be chaos, not order. And that's not what God is like. But, he says in verse 28, if there is no one to interpret, that if you don't know of anyone that speaks that language so as to interpret those words, making the unintelligible intelligible for the building up of the church, then he says, verse 28, then you need to keep silent. All things need to be done, he says, for building up. And words that build up need to be intelligible. So if you don't know anyone to interpret, then whatever it is that you want to say in another tongue, well, he says, you need to keep it to yourself and you need to talk to God instead. Speaking gospel words in a different language may be a gift from God. But if there's no one around to make that tongue intelligible to the church... Well, then it may be personally edifying, but it's not a gift for the gathering. I just had a pastor friend of mine, he's uh, in Japan at the moment, and he was gathering with a church there in Japan, and they were singing familiar hymns, but they were singing it all in Japanese, and he couldn't understand any of it, but he and a number of other brothers that he was traveling with were all going to be in that church at the time. They knew they were going to be there, and so they made sure in all of their singing that they provided an interpreter for them to understand, and the reality is, is that as beautiful as it may have been to, to hear them singing the truths of God according to familiar tunes, if you can't understand it, it's not edifying. But once an interpreter is brought in, then now it becomes intelligible and the church can be built up. Individual Christians can be built up. Corinth was a cosmopolitan city. People from all over the Roman Empire are present. All different kinds of languages, not unlike what we saw in Acts chapter 2. And so it's not unthinkable that a number of saints, having been brought by the grace of God to repent and believe in the gospel, are coming into the gathering of this church, and there's all kinds of nationalities, there's all kinds of languages, and they're being gifted to speak gospel words in their own languages, but how do they do it in an orderly way in order to build up the church in intelligible ways? Well, you need an interpreter. 
And he says the same orderliness, the same orderly spirit that is meant to govern tongues is also meant to govern the way that we prophesy or speak forth God's Word. Look at verse 29. He says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, well, then let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that you may all learn and be encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. We saw last week that the kind of prophecy that Paul is talking about from God is not the same as the Old Testament prophets or the apostles in the New Testament. It's not new revelation from God but it does flow from Scripture. It takes God's Word as it's read and preached and sung and prayed, and then being spoken to others, and then it reverberates through the membership of the church as they speak God's Word to one another. And people need to be able to pay attention so that they might, as it says here, learn and be encouraged. That's the aim, building up. If they cannot understand, they cannot learn, and if they cannot learn, they cannot be encouraged, and so order is necessary. They need to be able to pay attention. And so he says, don't all speak at once. The goal, verse 30, is that we're going to learn. We want to be built up. There's speaking, and then there's others that are hearing. And so when it comes to prophecy, builders will be willingly silent at times not speaking, so that they can learn. Or, to put it another way, sometimes spiritual builders just shut up and listen. It's harder for some of us to do than others, but that's the spirit of what Paul is saying. It doesn't mean that you can't speak in church. It just means that there's some times where you need to be silent. And the qualification on your silence is, is it going to build up the church? Is it going to help people learn and be encouraged? And if it's not, then zip it, because it's not going to be helpful. Keep it to yourself or wait your turn. That's what Paul's saying. I think this fits so well with what we saw in chapter 12. You may recall all the way back in chapter 12 that every single member matters, Each benefits the church in his or her own way, but what Paul wants us to understand from chapter 13, heading now into chapter 14, is that love and order in the church guards us against this kind of self-directed zeal, that zeal that outpaces godliness and wisdom, that zeal that can tend to be self-promoting of wanting to be seen and wanting to be heard, but not ultimately motivated by building up the church. So Paul says in verses 32 and 34 that ultimately this is what prophets do. That's why he talks about the spirit of the prophets. You see that phrase there in verse 32? When he's talking about the spirit of the prophets, he's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about their motivation, that all of the prophets aim to speak God's word in profitable ways. They're not domineering, but they're humble in their attitude. The spirit of a true prophet is one who is motivated by love, that pursues love, that speaks in love at appropriate times. That the whole church would be built up, Ephesians chapter 4. And this is the spirit that should season all of our speaking in the church. If it's not motivated by love, Paul said, then it's just a clanging symbol. 
It's a clashing gong that our worship doesn't look any different than the pagan worship elsewhere in the world. Now, when we speak gospel words to one another with the aim to build up and edify and console, it should be done with a godly and a humble spirit because, verse 33, God is not a God of confusion but of peace. Our aim when we gather is to speak and sing and pray and preach in such a way that it glorifies God and imitates Him, that it gives Him glory because He has revealed Himself to us in His Word. He's revealed Himself to us in His Son, not in a confusing way, but in an intelligible way and in a way that He's not only ordered creation, but ordered all of redemption that you and I might come to know, even with the most simplest of faith, how it is that sinners like us might be saved by the grace of God in Christ. That's what God is like, that He speaks in ways that are condescending, not in a proud way, but condescend to us as a parent might to a child, and speaks to us in a way that we can know His will for us unto salvation. Now, if you're visiting with us, Listen, if you're investigating Christian things, that will unto salvation is no less than this, that you are a sinner, that your own life is a testimony unto the rebellion against God. That is, that every single minute of every day, of every week, of every month of your life has not been permanently, perpetually, and perfectly focused on loving God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. That's the sum of the law. And I know that you know that's true. And what you know to be true implies that you are someone who is in need. Specifically, what you need is a mediator, someone to go in between you and God that reveals the will of God unto salvation for sinners like you and that is able to stand for sinners like you before an all-holy God. And that is the one man, the mediator Jesus Christ. And so when we preach Christ, when we commend Christ to you, what we're doing is we're saying, receive Him by faith. That His perfect life and obedience would be imputed to you, that would be your righteousness, and that all of your sins against God would be forgiven by God because Christ paid the penalty that you deserve. Friends, if we don't speak this kind of message... If you and I would have wandered into a church at any given time, if you and I had our own children in churches that could not make that message and all of its implications clear and intelligible in an orderly way, then those churches in effect would be speaking judgment to us and we would be on the outside looking in of God's covenant of grace. But He uses simple preaching, a simple message about the gospel spoken by God's people and intelligible and orderly ways to bring all those who repent and believe in the gospel to salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says you've got to not only be intelligible, but you need to be orderly. That's what prophets do. God is not a God of confusion, but He's a God of peace. Well, now beginning in the second half of verse 33, though, he's going to argue not only... Not only are good builders orderly, 
But he's going to say orderly building submits to God's Word. Now, let's consider a handful of things before we dive into the text. Number one, the context that we're talking about in verses 33 and following, specifically through 38, is all about weighing prophecy. Let me show you what I mean. Look back up at verse 29. There, Paul is going to summarize the structure of his argument. He said, first, let only two or three prophets speak. Well, that's what we just considered in verses 32 and 33, the orderliness of prophecy. But the second thing that he says in verse 29 is, let the others weigh what is said. Let the others weigh what is said. And that's the focus of the argument, beginning in verse 33 and following. Weighing and judging is the controlling theme of these verses. In fact, that word translated weigh in your Bible, it was used all the way back in chapter 11. It's about judging and discerning rightly who we are as the body of Christ. It has the sense of matching up. Here in verses 33 through 40, what he's saying is that orderly building through speaking gospel words has to match up to God's Word, to the Scriptures. Do our words, when we speak them to one another, do they match up with Scripture? How do they measure up to the inspired words of God's capital P prophets and capital A apostles? Those are the ones who form the foundation upon which the church is built, all centered on Christ, who's the cornerstone. And so, prophecy, on the one hand, the kind of prophecy that builds up flows from Scripture and is weighed against Scripture. In fact, go down and look at verse 37. Paul says as much there. He says, if anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he knows that my words, as a capital A apostle, possess the same authority as God's words because that's what they are. Paul's words are Scripture. The Apostle Peter says that in one of his own letters. And so, spiritual people weigh their words by Paul's words as by all Scripture. In other words, Scripture is the source from which all true prophecy flows, and it's the foundation by which it is to be tested. Now, spiritually immature people are going to buck against this. Spiritually immature people, those who, spiritually speaking, act like children, well, they'll say childish things like, well, I don't want to put God in a box. Or I believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not the Father, Son, and Holy Scripture. Or they'll say things like, I worship God, not the Bible. These and other quippy sound bites may sound really pious and spiritual, but they're really just subtle attacks against the authority of Scripture itself. Which really, if we're being honest with ourselves, is really attacks against God's authority because you can no more separate God's Word from God than you can separate our words from us. They reveal who we are and what we're like, and it's no different for God's Word. So, spiritually immature people don't want their words to be weighed by God's Word, or anyone else for that matter. They want to be able to say whatever they want, however they want, for the sake of their own appetites. And Paul's rebuking that here, because spiritually mature Christians want it. We want to be weighed by Scripture, because we know that Scripture is the only foundation on which churches can be built. 
All good builders are orderly, and all orderly building submits to Scripture. That's principle number one. But who now, just given that, who are the ones doing the weighing? And how should church members, both men and women, but especially husbands and wives, relate to one another as those under God's authority? I'm just going to pray. You can go read 33 through 35 on your own at home. Let me know what you get. Just joking. I'm going to lead you through it. I'm going to do my best. Read with me. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. But if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. These verses sound shocking to our ears, don't they? Shocking to our ears. Our modern and worldly sensibility goes, yeah, but really? I mean, really? Like, really? Did God say that? But I want to suggest that it's really these kinds of passages that make the reality of our spiritual maturity most clear. It's not the easy to understand passages. It's not the easy to apply passages. It's passages like this that say a whole lot as to whether or not we think the whole of the Scriptures are inspired by God for our good or only the parts that we like. It says a lot about our spiritual maturity. Will we be children in our thinking? Like some of my children, picky eaters that only eat what they like but turn up their noses at what they don't. Ah, quinoa? Gross. No, thank you. Okay, maybe that's me, but not my children. Knows my wife isn't here, so I'm safe. Nobody text her. She's probably watching the live feed. Oh, I'm in big trouble. Okay, so will we be mature in our thinking? Will we say, okay, quinoa might not be my preference, but I'm going to receive it with gladness and eat it because I know that it's good for me. And I trust that in time, as my palate matures, I'm going to learn to love it. That's how spiritually mature Christians come to Scripture. Even the hard parts, like verses 34 and 35. And so we pray, God, conform my palate to your word that I might be able to, to, to feed on it in a way that would do me good, that I would not reject it as a childish picky eater, but I would receive all of it by faith. But another thing that we need to notice in verses 34 and 35 is that Paul is, I think, picking up on a previous argument. If you were to jump straight into chapter 14, it may seem like Paul has just kind of dropped this little bomb out of nowhere, talking about prophecy and tongue speaking and love and building each other up, and then he goes, oh yeah, you wives, you need to be silent and submit. Whoa, where did that come from? What is he doing? In isolation, Paul's statement is rather jarring, but they're not random. They didn't come out of the blue. In fact, if you were to read through the entire letter from beginning to end, as Paul's audience no doubt would have done, then 
You recall that these two verses are simply applying the principles that he established earlier in chapter 11. The emphasis in chapter 11 was the same as what we see here in chapter 14. Order over disorder. Or, specifically as we see in verse 35, honor rather than dishonor. He's using that language of honor and shame to tie us back to his previous argument where he uses the same language in chapter 11. And so we saw all the way back in chapter 11 that God wants His churches to be filled with honor. And that means men and women, and especially husbands and wives, relating to one another according to God's good order in creation. That the head of every man is Christ, that the head of a wife is her husband, and that the head of Christ is God. You've got to understand, God's saving grace does not subvert or destroy nature. It redeems it and it restores it. And so, Christian men and women then are to work together interdependently for the building up of the church. And we are to do this according to God's created order, not against it. God's grace redeems it establishes it, restores it in our lives. That which had been cursed and corrupted by sin is being transformed by gospel grace. And so Paul's argument in chapter 11 goes something like this. Every man in the church should conduct himself like a man, and every woman in the church should conduct herself like a woman. But if any woman in the church is also a wife, then she and her husband must publicly relate to one another in the gathering of the church that exemplifies the goodness of God's created order, that the head of a wife is her husband. I preached a whole sermon on it. You can go back and listen to it online. I encourage you to go back and revisit it. And when we take that idea and we come back to chapter 14, Paul is saying to the Corinthians, when you come together as a church... Your church gatherings are not orderly, but they are chaotic, and that is contrary to God, it's contrary to His creation, and it's contrary to His Word, that it seems certain men aren't fulfilling their roles as men in the church, as those who are given by God to lead the church in teaching and judging and praying, and certain women are doing what the men are supposed to be doing, but aren't. Not only that... When certain wives pray or speak God's word in or around the gathering, well, then they're acting in a way that is dishonoring their husbands. And so Paul is rebuking them here. Certain husbands, it seems, are not leading their wives as God intends for them to lead their wives. And so there's chaos and confusion and disorder. So the first thing that we need to know then about verses 30, uh, 34 and 35 is that Paul is not saying anything new. He keeps it short and sweet because he assumes that we're already tracking with his argument back in chapter 11. Now that said, how are we then to understand not permitted to speak? It is shameful for a woman to speak. Are these verses saying that women should never, ever, ever, ever speak in church in the church's gathering? I think that's unlikely what Paul means. First of all, recall what we just considered a moment ago, that Paul applies the command, be silent, in at least three different times, to both men and women in different contexts, whether it be speaking in tongues or in prophecy. 
And in a chapter focused on building up the church with our words, it seems somewhat silly to take Paul's prohibition as an absolute. Because then nobody would be allowed to say anything and the church would never grow. That's the opposite of what Paul is saying. Now, in each instance, including verses Verse 34, silence, it seems, is qualified. It's qualified by orderliness. In other words, if you can't speak in an intelligible or orderly way, whether in a tongue or with prophecies or with respect to God's creation design for men and women, especially between husbands and wives, well, then you do better to remain silent than to say anything at all. And this, I think, seems to fit Paul's expectations for women in chapter 11 much better. Because there, Paul seems to assume that in and around the church, women are praying and prophesying, and he never once rebukes it. And if that's what he assumes, then we cannot take verse 34 and verse 35, I think, as absolute prohibitions. They're conditional prohibitions. In other words, so there may be circumstances in which women might pray or speak God's Word in orderly ways when the church gathers. There are other circumstances in which not speaking is best. And so then we need to ask, what are those circumstances? What is the context of Paul's conditional command here in verse 34? Well, I already explained to you that verses 33 and following, the context is weighing or judging prophecy. So, in the normal life of the church, Paul's assuming that both men and women work together to build up the church by speaking God's Word in intelligible and godly ways. But when it comes to judging what's said then every spiritually mature woman knows that God has given a certain kind of authority to every husband in their homes and a certain qualified men in the church, namely the church's elders. Then, to publicly act and speak in a way that honors their husbands and they set themselves to publicly act and speak in a way that submits to the church's leaders, all within the bounds of God's Word. And sometimes, Paul says... That means not saying anything at all. Now, some of you might be thinking, how can we be sure that Paul's words here aren't just a cover for sexism and misogyny and abuse? And I think you'd be right to ask that question. But we need to remember a few things. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because it gets us a little far afield from the point of the passage, but I think it needs to be addressed. First of all, we live in a world that cannot define what a man or a woman is. So when words like sexism or misogyny or abuse are used, it may not actually be pointing to anything bad at all. And we need to have that category. What do I mean? Ours is a world that is an open rebellion against both nature and God's Word. It openly calls bad what God's Word calls good. So, for example, the feminist spirit of our day laments godly wives who work at home. That's just the language of 1 Timothy 2, or Titus 2, rather. Who work at home with children as victims of a misogynistic system of abuse. That dastardly patriarchy, they might say. But on its face, it's neither misogynistic nor abusive, regardless of what they call it. If it's in line with God's Word, we call it good, no matter what the world calls it. 
So there are some times where those kinds of words will call something evil that is in fact good and orderly and right, and we have to have the discernment to see it for what it is. God's Word gives it to us. But we have to remember, secondly, that in certain homes that pretend to obey God's Word, real abuse happens. Certain families may seem idyllic at church, they may seem idyllic on Facebook, but behind closed doors there are husbands that use their strength to rule by anger and to control their wives in unkind, unjust, unloving, and manipulative ways. Or there are certain wives that use their tongues to rebelliously rule over their weak husbands, driving them, as the Proverbs puts it, all the way to the farthest corner of the roof with their quarrelsome spirit and their steady drip, drip, drip of criticism. The Bible calls both sin. They are both wicked. Both of them abuse the role that God has given for the sake of self-promotion and selfish gain in a marriage. Both of them are contrary to God's creation. They're contrary to God's Word. And a godly, mature church will not tolerate it. We will do our best to rebuke it. We will do our best to teach something good in its place. And... When repentance is absent, we will do our best, according to God's Word, to discipline it because it's contrary to God and His Word. It can't be tolerated. But even in these circumstances, and Lord forbid, even in these circumstances, you have to understand something. The problem is never, ever, ever God's Word. The problem is never Scripture. The problem is never Paul the misogynist. The problem is always our own sinful hearts. Our sin is always the problem, never God's Word. We might see it for what it really is and choose not to obey it. We might see it for what it is, not like it, and choose to distort it to our own aims. But one way or the other, it is we who corrupt righteousness not God's Word. It is holy and just and true and good. God's Word is never the problem. So how, can it, how is it that we know that verses 34 and 35 are good for us and not sexist or misogynistic or abusive? Because Paul says, my word comes from God's Word. Look at verse 33. He says, this prescription should be taken seriously in all the churches. It's binding everywhere because, in verse 34, it's rooted in God's law. The law here is talking about the Old Testament, not talking about a particular rule under the Old Covenant, but it's talking about the totality. So you might think about how Jesus refers to the law and the prophets. It's referring to the Old Testament Scriptures, specifically the first five books of the Bible. So he says in verse 34, it's rooted in God's law. And then without a doubt, that law, I think, is referring to Genesis 1 and 2, because that was his primary reference in his argument in chapter 11. Remember, he's just making the same argument. He's picking up where he left off. 
And we know from these chapters that differing roles, that is Genesis 1 and 2, that differing roles in the church and home have nothing to do ultimately with inequality because both men and women are God's image bearers, equal in dignity and value and worth. Not only that, that when it comes to building, God created men and women to be mutually interdependent. It wasn't good for man to be alone. So in the woman, he made a helper fit for him. They were created to complement one another, ruling God's world together with the man as her head and the woman his helper. And these complementary roles do not at all imply inequality, only that God created men and women differently for the sake of of fulfilling different roles to the glory of God and to the good of His people. And what's more, when you get to Genesis 3, Sin doesn't change nature. It corrupts it, but it doesn't cancel it. That's why in Genesis 3, God upholds these creative differences even after sin had come into the world. And He tells the woman in His words of cursing and blessing, He says, your desire will be for your husband. That word for desire is also used in Genesis chapter 4, that, that sin's desire was for Cain, and it was crouching at the door for him. Same word. Your desire is to devour your husband, but he will rule over you. So don't think just because sin has come into the world that the created order has been canceled. Now, he is a sinner, and in his ruling, he may rule unjustly, and he will give an account for that. But it doesn't overturn the creation order that I've established. I've woven it into creation. And so this creation order, Paul says, is reflected in both Christian marriages and Christian churches. In marriage, the Bible gives the role of headship to every husband. And grace restores nature by giving Christian husbands the power and the paradigm for ruling well. That both his authority and his love imitate Christ's authority and Christ's love. We saw that in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians chapter 5. Wives, they submit to their husband as the church submits to Christ, seeking to help and to honor her husband. Grace restores nature. Not only that, God's creation gives the paradigm for every church as well, and that's as much the focus here as marriage. That was Paul's argument all the way back in chapter 11, and it's the argument that he makes elsewhere, especially in key chapters like 1 Timothy chapters 2 and 3. It's beyond the scope of our time today to go look at those personally, but let me just give you the gist of it. You can read it on your own this afternoon and measure my words against God's word. I'm happy for you to do it. That God has given the office of elder and overseer, that is, of leadership and oversight in the church to qualified men only. That's why Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. She may speak and she may pray God's word in an orderly manner at appropriate times. This is me explaining to you. This isn't me quoting scripture. But when it comes to the kind of speaking that teaches and governs the church, then she can't presume to speak in this way, but she gladly defers and submits to the church's qualified elders. And that's what I think Paul's rationale for ordering the church is. How how is he thinking about this? He says in 1 Timothy 2, 
that he orders it this way, that the church is to be ordered in this way, because that's how God ordered creation. Why are in matters of, of teaching and authority for men only, Paul says, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. So he roots it ultimately in the creation order, just like he's doing here in chapter 11 and chapter 14. Now, hang with me, I'm almost done. When you take all of that, 1 Timothy 2 and 3, 1 Corinthians 11, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, when you put it all out on the table and you begin to put it together and you draw out the necessary inferences that flow from it, then what we can conclude in our passage here is that when the church gathers, the kind of authoritative speaking that judges prophecies is to be done in an orderly way by the church's elders especially. Disorder in this church came not only from unintelligible speech, but an insubordinate spirit that disregarded God's creation and God's word. So Paul says, just as he said in chapter 11, fill the church with honor instead. Honor the church's men in the roles that God has given them. Because when roles get reversed and women act like men and men act like women, dishonor and disorder infect the church. What does this look like practically? In our own church, as we gather, just prudentially, the way that we try to honor Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 14 is that the elders of this church oversee all of the gospel content of our services, and we aim to speak those gospel words and lead the service in such a way that would exemplify the authority that belongs to our office. Not because we're inherently powerful people, but because God has given His office of elder a certain authority, that authority is governed by the Word and can go no further. And so when we stand and lead our services as we do each Lord's Day, we aim to lead by the Word. We think that fulfills, in one sense, the office that we occupy. And everything that happens up here with anybody that reads or speaks or prays or in the songs that are, sing that are sung, it's all done under the oversight of the elders, that we are every week, week in and week out, making judgments concerning the gospel content of our gatherings, concerning God's Word being spoken to God's people for the upbuilding of the church. And so one way that you see that we try to obey 1 Corinthians 14, the spirit of it, is by having our elders lead the service. Everything that's happening is happening under the oversight of the elders. But it might also apply to small groups and even our lingering ministry before and after gatherings. So let's say that a man in a group speaks in an attempt to build up, and the group weighs what he says according to Scripture, but his wife, on the other hand, is not so sure she disagrees. She's happy to engage in the conversation in a godly way, but rather than challenge him openly in the group, she might seek to honor him by choosing not to speak. But then when after they go home, she says something to the like of, I wasn't sure about the comment that you made. Can you explain to me what you were thinking? I want to learn what was on your mind. Tell me how you understand God's Word in that way. Now, married men, if our wives ask us questions like this in private, we are not to be taking it as an affront. We're not to be defensive. We are not to, to be thin-skinned. Because in reality, when our wives come to us and talk to us in this way, they're acting in a truly spiritual way, 
that seeks to honor God's Word and to work alongside you in the mutual building up of the church. Is that not what we see in the chapter here? And so, brothers, we need to be willing to make time and space for these kinds of conversations in our church. We don't need to squeeze them out. We don't need to control them, and we don't need to be afraid of them. We need to be humble and teachable, not defensive and proud. This might even look like after conversations with our spouses, going back to our one another group, or going back to our fellowship group, or going back to the people that we lingered with before or after the gathering the previous week, and you said, you know, my wife brought up some things to me this week that I had never thought about in God's Word, and I think she makes a really good point that would be useful to us all. Babe, would you mind explaining it? You just do it so much better than I do. Do you see how that is done in a way where she is honoring him, and he is eager to be built up by gospel words being spoken by fellow members in the church? Now, obviously, I've scripted that a little bit, so it's never going to look that neat and clean, all you married people say amen, but that's the spirit of it. But what about in our membership meetings? Every member, we affirm, is a saint and a priest to God. The priesthood of all believers, though, does not undo God's creation order. In every way possible, a husband and a wife should aim to vote on church matters with one mind. Brothers, when we go home with our wives and, and, and with our children, we might sit down with them before a members' meeting and work through the packet together. Lead your wife. That doesn't mean that you necessarily know more than her, that you have a monopoly on spiritual wisdom. With a packet in one hand and a Bible in another, you might lead your wife to God's Word, and both of you aim to submit to God together and to come prepared together, united in our members' meetings. And then likewise, when we come together in our members' meetings, when discussion takes place on a particular issue, honor the elders of the church by giving them the final words and following their leadership, insofar as we're not asking you to disbelieve biblical doctrine or disobey biblical commands. God has given qualified men to lead in this way. Not only men to lead in the homes, but particular men to lead in our church. And if you disagree, then sisters, you might talk to your husbands in advance and then come together and talk to, talk to us in a way where your concerns are shared in a way that honors your husband and honors the leadership of the church. It's a godly way to approach it prudentially in the way that we do life together as a church. I think this is why Paul issues such a strong challenge against their own pride and self-promotion in verses 36 to 39. He knows that we're so easily motivated by the flesh that we can, be, we can push back against being judged and weighed by Scripture. We're more likely to be proud than humble. We're more likely to want to speak than be silent. And so this is what Paul says. Or was it from you that the Word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone doesn't recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. He's saying that if you won't listen to me on how to use your words and how to relate to one another as men and women and husbands and wives in your church's gatherings, then you are saying that you sit above God's Word. Moreover, if you presume to speak God's Word, then you will be judged by God's Word. And that's a good thing for the sake of the church. 
The kind of speech that builds up is filled with gospel content that has already been spoken in one sense or another by capital P, Old Testament prophets, and capital A, New Testament apostles. Scripture, then, is our final judge. Notice that Paul's not only concerned about the content of their prophecy, though he has been up to this point, but notice also in these verses that he's also concerned with the conduct of the prophet. Will the one who speaks forth God's words imitate Paul's example, and in so doing, imitate Jesus's example of being motivated not by self-promotion, but even being willing to give up things from love for the building up of the church, including the right sometimes to speak? He says, real prophets... Those who are eager for spiritual things that we saw in the beginning of the chapter, they are going to be eager to pursue everything they do in love, and they're going to submit themselves to Scripture. So if a person presumes to speak God's Word to others, but does it in a domineering or a controlling or a manipulative way, and he sets himself above challenge or correction, or the person who won't listen to others or allow their words to be judged against Scripture, Paul says, not spiritual not a prophet. You don't have to recognize one as such. Don't listen to them. There might be situations, for instance, where someone is claiming the gifts of prophecy and becomes a situation of power or manipulation. If I got a word from God over you, they presume to speak for God over others, but they refuse to be judged by God in the church according to His Scriptures. Paul says, if that's what they think they are, then you are not bound to their words. You don't have to recognize them. It's not spiritual, and they're not a prophet. Do you realize how freeing that is? How freeing this is? To not be bound to every supposed word received by every Christian in the church over us? The Lord alone, God alone is the Lord of the conscience. And He has given us everything that we need to know concerning His will unto salvation and life and godliness in His Word. And so we measure everything by it. Furthermore, He says that if any woman seeks to speak forth God's Word but does so in a manner that dishonors her husband or functions like an elder in the church, or implicitly if any man refuses to speak forth God's Word, refuses to pray, and does so in a manner that fails to properly lead his wife and to aspire to godly influence in the church, then their words are not to be regarded. Paul says of them both, not spiritual, not a prophet. You are not to acknowledge them in that way. Such men and women are not to be recognized. Beloved, the only words worthy of recognition are words that build up. And the only words that build up are those intelligible words spoken from God's Word to God's people in an intelligible and orderly way. And that, that word-speaking ministry that all of us have, as we linger before and after our gatherings, as we go into our fellowship groups, as we go into our one another groups, as we practice hospitality, even as any one of us stands up to pray or read or sing or whatever it may be, in all of these ways, 
the reverberation of God's word to God's people in love for building up, well, that is at the heart of the church's mission. Paul says to this church, you've missed it. And he would say to us today, pursue love. Pursue love. Let all things be done for building up. And all things need to be done decently and in good order. Good builders are orderly. And orderly building submits to God's word. Let's pray.